Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Paul Escott's new book, The Civil War Political Tradition, Ten Portraits of Those That Formed It, likewise refuses to divide things into neat and discreet boxes. Rather, it profiles very different people who nevertheless all endorsed or rebelled against a political tradition that emphasized individual ambition, short-term thinking, compromise, and a pragmatic approach to problems, a tradition that did not, however, have the necessary power to resolve the crisis of slavery and race that engulfed the United States in the mid-19th century. Paul D. Escott is the Reynolds Professor of History Emeritus at Wake Forest University. He was last on the podcast in episode 294, discussing his book, Black Suffrage. Paul Escott, welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So this is a slim and elegant volume. I trust it is the distillation of decades of thinking. Am I correct about that? I mean, there's, there's obviously, someone said, I, I've quoted this and I can't remember a lot on the podcast, but that a book is ultimately an answer to a problem that you just can't get rid of without writing a book. <laughs> so what was the what was the problem that required a book? As you said a moment ago, um, this reflected things I had been working on throughout my career. Uh, I had been teaching for over 40 years. And in those years of teaching, I had talked at different times about all of the major figures in the 19th century. I'd looked into some of them, written about some of them, uh, studied others. And uh, as I am now retired, I began to think that it would be pleasurable and challenging to write these portraits of 10 major figures in the 19th century, all of whom had an important connection to central questions about race, slavery, and equality. So I wouldn't argue um, that the 19th century is a tight unit. A lot of different things happened in the 19th century, but certainly a dominant question that ran throughout the whole century was, what was the United States going to do about race, slavery, and equality? Would the United States address the ideals of the Declaration of Independence or not? And these people all had major roles. So I was reflecting on that, and I was uh, kind of inspired by the form that Richard Hofstadter took to his famous book uh, about the American political tradition, which spanned a larger period of time and focused mainly on presidents. But, so these are, as I said, 10 people who are very different, and two of them are presidents. We'll get to, we'll get to that. Um, uh, Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Frederick Douglass, Stephen A. Douglass, Jefferson Davis, Abraham Lincoln, Horace Greeley, Albion Torgay, Torgay. I, I how do I pronounce his name? I usually have heard it as Torgay. Torgay. Well, <laughs> and Schuldigung, um, Torgay, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, very different people, and also very interesting the people that you left out. So we have two of the so-called great triumvirate, but not Daniel Webster. Uh, we could go on down the list in, in, in that way. Um, so I, I wanted to avoid some of the people that we've talked about in the past, although I really, I, I, I find Horace Greeley so, almost irresistible to return to because he's such an odd cat. 
Um, and very American uh, in some ways too. And yet also, I was my question for you is, that, had he read too much European philosophy? <laughs> but it's, it's, sometimes I, I wonder about them. But I, I think we'll, what we'll start off with is someone I've ever talked about before, other than when I taught about him, is, is Henry Clay. So this is a, a man of extraordinary political longevity. And yet technically, when he dies, it's 10 years before the Civil War, and I believe it was... Uh, Freeling in his, William Freeling in his book, one of his uh, his tri his uh, trilogy on the the Civil War, describes that moment as where Southern secessionists and would be secessionists feel completely deprived of oxygen. That the that their mo moment at Clay's death, their moment is over, and they'll never achieve their wildest, most radical goals. Um, so, how is Clay part of a Civil War political tradition? Well, Clay, of course, was known as the great compromiser because three times in his long career, he was able to find some short-term adjustment that smoothed over a sharp conflict over slavery. And uh, he did this because he had some remarkable personal skills. Um, William Seward, who did not like Clay, nevertheless said that he was a seductive personality, someone so amiable and affable that you simply couldn't resist him. And those personal skills, which included a wonderful speaking voice and the ability to lecture or speak extemporaneously for hours uh, in a cogent way, um, helped him as a legislative leader to work out compromises. Um, he also probably should be remembered by us as someone who represented the West in those early days. Um, when we think about the Civil War, we start thinking North and South. But in the first half of the 20th century, especially, and even later, uh, the West was really important in people's minds. And Clay, coming from Kentucky, was seen as a Westerner. Um, I wanted to point out, too, that in his attitude toward slavery and toward the future of the United States with slavery, he kind of represents Kentucky and that uh, sort of middle uh, third of the country. The North was moving in one direction, the South in a different one, and uh, Clay in Kentucky tended to stay more in the middle uh, in a way that was similar to the view that the founding fathers had had. His attitude toward slavery and race and what should be done about it really didn't change much from that of the founding fathers. Uh, some of them had joined him in 1816 in founding the American Colonization Society. And to the end of his life, Clay did not approve of slavery, but he continued to hope that somehow it would go away, that the slaves could be colonized or that the institution would die out. And that was reflective it, it, of the founders. It, it is, I think, perhaps because of his really shocking youth when he it, when he's elected to Congress and is immediately elected Speaker of the House and really is one of the most consequential speakers of the House for probably a century until the, you know, um, uh, after that, that he in some ways changes less than anyone else in the book. That's a good observation. Uh, it, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, cause, because did I don't know if he actually studied with George with, but he could have. I, I mean, that was one of the, I don't know if that's a myth about him or not, but in that way he reproduces Patrick Henry and George With's position. He represents a certain position in Virginia almost prior to Gabriel's Rebellion in 1801. Mm -hmm. 
which he then carries forward for the next 50 years. It's really quite extraordinary. Yes, uh, he doesn't change in his basic attitude about these central questions. And by the end of his life, it's becoming clear to more and more people that time is running out on his approach. Uh, mm -hmm. it, his, his way of dealing with these issues would not be effective any longer. And he is, in many ways, he is the, well, to paraphrase Lincoln, he's the beau ideal of this tradition that emphasizes individual ambition, check, that is him, uh, short-term thinking. He is a brilliant politician in the sense that, like a quarterback, like a great quarterback, he never, he forgets the previous errors and maneuvers his way towards a short-term goal. And he, compromise, check, we've discussed that, and a pragmatic approach to problems, check. That, so really, this is Clayism that you're talking about, this political tradition. Yes, you could argue that. Um, others who uh, sought compromise uh, were inspired by him, as Lincoln was. And many, uh, like Lincoln, uh, also were attracted to his idea of colonization. Uh, there were members of the Republican Party who continued to argue strongly for colonization well into the Civil War, uh, even when it became pretty clear that that was not a realistic solution. So we didn't t discuss this enough in the last one. I, you know, Michael Burlingham has kind of convinced me that Lincoln was never really much of a colonizer. Um, that, uh, I mean, the 1840s and 1850s, this is just, it's not something that's important to Lincoln. I wouldn't, uh, that, I would not agree with that. I mean, if you look at his yeah, statement as, as president, uh, he continues to argue strongly for it. And we know that he's he, still interested in it even after July 1st, 1863. Yeah. And I, I, that was always very dispositive to me, but what's interesting to me now is how little, I, I don't. I think Burling. I have to. I have to check this. But I think Burlingham says Lincoln never had made statements, pro pro colonization statements. You know, as a Whig, as a Whig politician in Central Illinois in the eighteen forties and eighteen fifties. Well, and I believe and that, that, that some this, of the speeches that he gave to the Colonization Society were lost, and we do not know what he said. Oh, so. okay. They're, they're, well, that's that's fair yeah. enough. Um, the. Um, but Burlingham's point would be is is that he he argues on the basis of editorials in in, in black newspapers during the Civil War, and uh, other people who have met with the president that Lincoln this is part of Lincoln's short term political maneuvering mm -hmm. for some sort of scrap of advantage, you know, in 1862 to the 1864 election. Um, you know, this is the, that this is, I, my words, this is the very, the devious, you know, foxy Lincoln, um, rather than something that's, uh, I mean, Clay, Madison, people of that era in the upper South. Well, there, it seems to me there are people in the upper South who do it, uh, because they would be abolitionists, but they can't get reelected if they were. So there's there's that. There are other people that believe that it's the only way of eliminating the 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 what they see as the certainty of a race war um, is is colonization. And I I don't I don't know if Lincoln fits into either of those things. Maybe the second. Well, um, I would agree that there are times when Lincoln acts like a politician and takes a a short term. Um, I know, I know you wouldn't. It <laughs> um, was not somebody who set out to chart a course that was tightly 
um, tied in every moment to principle. Uh, instead, he tried to see how things were going and adjust to changes and and, and do what he could. An influence, um, and that 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 statement of public opinion being everything, mm-hmm. often misused or misunderstood. What he then means is, therefore, you must influence and adjust public opinion. And take advantage of the opportunities that it offers you, too. And they're often, yes, exactly. There were other people, you didn't quite mention this group, but there were others who maybe were uh, troubled by slavery and really wanted things to be different in the United States, but they could not imagine a place for African Americans in the country. That probably is, which is probably Clay. I mean, probably. And it also tends to be even Harry Peter Stowe. Yeah. That yeah. shows us how so, deep the problem was. Anything else we should say about Clay so, uh, by, uh, before we, we, we move on to our next case? Um, well, I think it might be good just to mention at the end here that even at the end of his life, he said that he would never, uh, on his um, initiative, plant slavery where it did not exist. And that reflected this earlier feeling that slavery was simply not what America should have, that the founders had. So let's skip over, um, um, we're not moving in the order of the chapters, but I wanted to skip to Stephen A. Douglas. Sure. S- since Douglas is um, in many ways the most clay-ish of the subsequent people um, in that uh, he is certainly addicted to short-term political maneuvering mm-hmm. and to pragmatic compromise. Um, and he is also... It's quite clear, as as you illuminate, he is a committed nationalist in the way that he runs his presidential campaign. So, could we could we give a can you give a brief potted bio of Douglas, and then we'll talk about his his low and high points or low and low points? Well, I would first say that uh, he moved to Illinois and committed himself to being a Westerner, one of these Westerners that were influential in that period, and. Uh, Expanding the country further west was always a major part of his um, goals and, and his identity. He was a very representative uh, politician in 1850 in that uh, he was popular in so many ways and shared the views of so many people in the country. And that would include um, the fact that he was a region of the Smithsonian Institution and was excited about technological advances and scientific advances. Um, but uh, ironically, uh, after helping to arrange the short-term solution in 1850, uh, he torpedoes it, in effect, in 1854, when he agrees to change his Kansas-Nebraska bill to uh, remove the um, Missouri Compromise's line of 36 degrees, 30 minutes. And that creates enormous controversy that is going to be problematic for the country and for him. So we should say that he was originally from Vermont, correct? Like his fellow Illinoisan Brigham Young, uh, or t- temporary Illinoisan Brigham Young. There's a lot of these Vermonters that end up becoming Westerners, but he doesn't have uh, a, a radical politics that also goes along with being a Vermont, a Vermont uh, native in the upper Midwest. Or, or the Midwest, he is instead the. But he is focused at to reemphasize. Like I like the Brigham Young analogy because they are both focused on the West. Uh-huh. In many, that's sort of the. Am I right in thinking of this is the mainspring for why he does certain things? Is that because he's so absolutely obsessed with Western development? It's a major part of his goals. 
And as the senator from Illinois in the 1850s, he knows that if settlement is going to occur on the Great Plains, it would be enormously valuable for Illinois. It would stimulate the economy. Chicago would grow. Uh, and uh, he believed this would be very good for the whole country. So, And he was chairman of the Committee on the Territory, both in the House and in the Senate, for many years. These things were Which very a, important to him. An immensely important committee in the mid-19th century. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and he is the driving force between Chicago becoming a railroad hub, right? Yes. And, and sort of beating St. Louis, which is the great, the great goal, well, even to this day. Beating St. Louis. I think Chicago has beaten St. Louis now. I think they I won. I think St. they won, Louis but they, it's a much smaller city than it used to be. Yeah, they, I, they won, but they're still very they're still very edgy about each other. That's that's for that's for certain. Um, but but why why did he blow it up in 1854? I, I why did he why did he decide to he had helped Henry Clay the the compromise of 1850. He had snatched. Why does he snatch defeat from the jaws of victory? I think there are three reasons. Um, logic, political advantage, uh, and uh, uh, in addition to that, uh, he also, um, uh, well, let me, let me come back to the third one. Logic. Um, the Southerners were saying to him, uh, how can you say that we will have settlers decide what's going to be done in Kansas and Nebraska if the Missouri Compromise says that there can be no slavery above 36 degrees, 30 minutes. So logically, it would make sense to torpedo uh, that 1820 compromise. Politically, it was extremely important to him to have Southern backing. Uh, he wanted to become the presidential nominee uh, in 1856 uh, and certainly by 1860, and he kept working for that. And the Democrats really depended on Southern votes to a very large extent. The Southern states were producing a great um, portion of the electoral votes that were needed to win the presidency, and they were a key part of the Democratic Party. So Douglas wanted to you know, satisfy um, those, those Southern Democrats as well. Um, and when he uh, made this decision, he also was reflecting, this is the third really important thing, what Lincoln charged him with, which was that he was morally indifferent to the problem of slavery. Douglas was, after all, a very vocal, committed white supremacist. Uh, I mean, he said repeatedly that this is a white man's government, that it, black people should have no, no role in it, that he stood for white men. And uh, although many people in the North were outraged by the idea that slavery would now spread onto the Great Plains where it had been prohibited, Douglas really was morally indifferent to that. Mm -hmm. And this is where Lincoln breaks from, say, the political short-termism of Henry Clay, because Lincoln, one of Lincoln's, uh, this is this is Lincoln's addiction to natural law. In some ways, we could we could say he he believes that there are some things are too important to be decided by popular sovereignty. Exactly. This was what we sometimes today call a red line for Lincoln. He was not going to compromise on spreading slavery into new territories. And uh, that, of course, made the compromise impossible in 1861. Um, before the Lincoln-Douglas debates, even in 1856, 
Douglas has gotten crossways of James Buchanan. Uh, we don't think of James Buchanan much anymore. Alec Veltso in his book on Lincoln-Douglas debates goes into, into entertaining detail, at least to my, to my mind, of how Buchanan and Doug, uh, Buchanan consistently undermined Douglas in every possible way that he could. Um, there wasn't, I don't believe there was a postmaster in Illinois that was appointed on Douglas's say-so. Uh, usually sort of, a, a, at least they got to, to nominate them, uh, at least to dispense some patronage. But this is a very important, this is an indication of a rift which will become increasingly wider um, in the Democratic Party because of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Yes, that's true. And uh, Douglas had gotten the support of uh, Jefferson Davis, who was Secretary of War under um, uh, under Franklin Pierce, and had gotten Pierce's support in getting the the Kansas-Nebraska Act through. But by 1857, it was so clear that the uh, settlers in, in uh, Kansas did not want slavery, that he eventually broke with, with Buchanan. And that was very significant, not only for the Democratic Party, but for Douglas, because from that point on, Southern leaders really did not trust him. Uh, some very fine historians argue that Douglas probably still had a good bit of support among Democratic voters in the South, but he could not get uh, a unified nomination in 1860 because the Southern leaders no longer thought that he was reliable. And did that did Lincoln enhance that by putting Douglas into a sort of the horns of a dilemma in the Lincoln-Douglas debates? I mean, this is that's usually the way that it's people have often portrayed that Lincolnians portray it in that way. That Lincoln at least is determined if he can't win, he will ruin Douglas politically. Well, I think Lincoln made sure that uh, that would be pointed out through the debates. Uh, but I think it's likely that most of the Southern leaders had already turned against Douglas and that mm -hmm. uh, Lincoln's um, actions in the debate maybe did more to uh, send a message to Northern voters than to change mm -hmm. the view of the South toward Douglas. And so Douglas is the only person in the 1860 election, the Democratic parties, I should say, they, they, they divide at their first convention, and then there's a breakaway convention. So there's a Northern Democrat candidate, which is who is Douglas, and a Southern Democrat candidate, uh, who is John C. Breckinridge. That's right. Uh, oh, very good. And, um, I, and Douglas is the only candidate, there are four candidates that year, We also John Bell of the Constitutional Union Party and Lincoln. He's the only one of four candidates who campaigns throughout the entire nation, which is is indicative of what I had alluded to at the beginning. His uh, he he shares from Clay a nationalism that rises above simple sectionalism. Absolutely, it showed his nationalism. It also was a highly unusual thing to do at that time. Most presidential yeah. candidates did not campaign throughout the, the country or even through their own state, but Douglas saw that uh, Lincoln was likely to win and that the crisis was going to come. So he went into the deep south and argued that uh, the Union should be kept together, that Southerners should not succeed. And once the war started, he let Lincoln know that he was supporting him in order to preserve the Union. I want to, uh, for a third personality, uh, I want to uh, go to a uh, an overlooked American politician, um, a man who I like to think of as the best qualified individual ever to be elected to be an American president. And that is Jefferson Davis, who is 
Confederate States of America, so he was elected an American president. <laughs> but when people talk about qualifications for president and the background, I mean, Davis, it's really, uh, he was, he had done, he, if he is, comes closer than most Americans to going through the Roman cursus honorum of the whole line of offices and experiences. He's commanded men in combat, check. You know, he's been a great plantation, check. Uh, slave owner for the Romans, check. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then he's been uh, well-educated as an engineer at West Point, check. Um, classical education as well, Transylvania Academy, check. Mm-hmm. Um, and he finally is a senator. I mean, he and he is actually one of the great, one of the best peacetime secretaries of war probably of the 19th century, right. other than John C. Calhoun. Mm-hmm. Um he is an immensely qualified man when he becomes president of the Confederate States. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I think is really important to understand him is that he, he was intelligent and realistic. Um, like many of these Southern politicians, he had spent part of his career trying to pick up the, the mantle or the fame of John C. Calhoun by being aggressive and, and complicated and, and objecting to things. But um, among all the major Southern leaders of his generation, uh, Davis proved to be more intelligent and realistic uh, about the whole conflict and about the war. Uh, He's one of the few Southern leaders who understood before the war began that it was going to be a very destructive, bloody conflict, and that it was not going to be one of these things where the South would quickly establish its independence and its uh, superiority. And then as Confederate president, he saw that some very unpopular measures were needed if the Confederacy were to be independent. And among Southern leaders, uh, he is the one who is most uh, determined to gain independence as opposed to anything else. The Confederate Congress would rather keep slavery even if they're going to lose. <laughs> and that's what they did. He'll do anything to achieve independence and the rest can come with it or, or not come with it. But independence, he, I mean, he has a strategic vision. He has a grand strategy, um, which, you know, he, he which is is the independence of the 13 states of the Confederacy, uh, including Missouri and Kentucky. That's that's the objective. That's right. Uh, and I hasten to say that he wasn't imagining that there would be uh, equal rights for black people after uh, independence and after freedom. But he was willing to free the slaves in order to put men in the Confederate army and try to win independence. That was more important than maintaining slavery. Or at least he was by late 1864. We should we should hasten to add. And this is this is where he's different than Clay. And he's well, actually Calhoun changes, of course. Unlike Clay, Calhoun changes quite a lot in his career, or at least he has a one big conversion experience. But Davis, um, Davis can like Lincoln, Lincoln Lincoln's goal is union, and he will do anything to achieve union, reachieve union. Davis's goal is independence, and he will do anything to achieve independence. So there's there's a way in which both of them will dodge and weave and bob and, and hop and skip to achieve as long as they keep moving forward to that goal. I will point out that before the break became inevitable, uh, Davis tried to be uh, kind of a compromiser in 1858 when he traveled through the North and... Uh, reported that there were a lot of Democrats in the North who supported the South's rights. Uh, And he also went so far as to say that what Stephen Douglas had been saying about the territories was true, 
namely that you could not force slavery on any territory because if the people there didn't want it, they wouldn't support it and the slave owners wouldn't feel that they could take their slaves there. He even admitted that in 1858. Uh, and he was hoping in 1860 that the Democratic Party might hold together by nominating somebody other than Douglas. Uh, once uh, those efforts to, those sort of last desperate efforts on his part to hold on to the Union fell apart, then he became a committed and fervent uh, Confederate nationalist. Yeah, it, but it is interesting how late that, I think he still holds out hope for the Crittenden Compromise, uh, uh, even after, well, that's in early 1860, um, but then he, 1861, but then he, as you say, he turns and becomes this arch national, Confederate nationalist. That's right. And from the very beginning, he said, no compromise can be entertained any, any longer. Our goal is independence, and that's what we must work toward. Um. A couple other things about him. He is, I was going to say remarkably sensitive for a politician, but I think I would say remarkably sensitive for anybody. Um, he hates to be hated, I think. Even criticized. And, he, and criticized. And he is extraordinarily, I mean, to say thin-skinned is almost to say it too, is to say it, you know, to be too gentle about it. But he is, a, he's extraordinarily gentle, and it's it's uh, uh, it's hard. One doesn't want to psychologize. We don't have the degrees for that, um, and there's not enough data anyway. But it is an extraordinary part of his character. Yes, I I could speculate, uh, but I really can't say that I can explain his psychology. Possibly, uh, he felt a little bit um, in his older brother's shadow and uh, needed to assert himself, um, but. Uh, uh, he he was somebody that you wouldn't imagine had political talents because he found it difficult to get along with people. And all of the criticism that was made of him during the Civil War um, came in a time when he was trying consciously not to be confrontational and not to get into fights with people. But uh, he really simply uh, didn't have any of those talents that Clay had for getting along with people and for charming people. Um, and yet he, uh, he loses, <laughs> and yet he remains an extraordinarily important political figure in ways that I think have been overlooked and that we are apt to overlook. It's not that he becomes popular, but it is rather significant to me that a, a, a Mississippian, uh, who spent the remainder of his life after being freed from prison uh, in Fort Monroe, Virginia, um, that he's buried in Hollywood Cemetery about 60 miles down the road from where I am in Richmond. It's rather, it's it's sort of the last, his last political act is to choose where to be buried. Mm -hmm. And in that, he is the, one of the primary exponents of the lost cause political tradition. At the end of the war, he was not a popular person and not a popular Confederate president. But as you say, the South created a myth about the war, this lost cause myth. And Davis could fit into that myth as somebody who had uh, fought for Confederate independence and who had been mistreated by being imprisoned uh, with, with already poor health. And he achieved greater respect and appreciation after the war because of uh, the way that the myth could benefit his reputation. 
Yeah. Did his, I mean, he, I've never had the slightest interest to read his book, his memoir of the Confederate government or whatever it's called. I mean, does that, is that part of, I mean, I have no idea how it's sold. I have no idea the art. I mean, I assume, I always assume that it was the political statement of the lost cause um, ideology, just as Jubal Early was establishing sort of the idea of the the uh, defeat, never defeated but conquered Confederate army. It's not a good read. It's full of turgid prose, and of course, it defends the South state rights ideas. Um, mm-hmm. But he also does mention at one point there that the South lost due to a theory, that is, that they they were not willing to take strong enough central measures to use all of their strength and to win the war. Um, Which is what, of course, he was willing to bring about the first draft, I think, in the English-speaking world. That's right. Uh, the, in order to take talk about decisive centralized measures. Well, and the entire Confederate experience was a very unsouthern experience. Um, it was very difficult for Southerners to take on the measures that were necessary to win the war. And Davis was very unpopular as a result of it. A lot of people accused him of being a dictator because he had departed so much from state rights and limited government. Let's uh, move on to some non-politicians, uh, and I think we can't begin any better place than Harriet Beecher Stowe. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Lincoln apocryphally said, probably, so you're the little lady who wrote the book that started this great war. Um, her background is, uh, well, she could almost be out of a perfectly balanced sample of northern, uh, of Yankee anti-slavery people or even, I mean, she's out of, uh, I'm thinking she's out of my uh, old teacher, Richard Carradine's dissertation or his, his book on Northern Evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Um, but could you describe the background, the importance of her background to who she became? Well, she comes from a distinguished family of ministers and reformers. Um, her brothers, her husband, her father, um, they were all uh, active in um, religious activities and in in writing and publishing. Uh, She had sisters who also were reformers, uh, one in education, another one in women's rights. Those two sisters didn't even agree, actually. But uh, it comes out of not only a reformist background, but very much a religious background. And her religious view of everything is central to uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it's it's, uh, central to our understanding how we should view Uncle Tom as a figure in, in that uh, novel. Yeah. And it's also key that she's, she is a Westerner well, uh, or that her father was another New Englander who moved West to Cincinnati, the Athens of the West, which he saw as the, as the, the gateway to this new world of the West. To save the West for Christ, uh, you know, to, yes. to run a seminary that would uh, make sure that the West um, developed in, a Christian manner and with the right religious values. And a seminary, which eventually, was that Lane? But a, a seminary that would eventually become a sort of, uh, a, 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 was indeed a seminary, a seedbed of abolitionist preachers uh, and also of conflict over race. That's right. And uh, many of the students uh, were not happy with the sort of mild approach that the Lane Seminary was taking. So they went and went to Oberlin and... Uh, uh, became more rabid abolitionists. Yeah, so we've discussed this in a, in a recent podcast. Um, and it's also significant that Cincinnati, that's on the Ohio, that across is Kentucky, and that the the part that people in the 19th century 
knew of Uncle Tom's Cabin. They knew it from all the stage plays and depictions that were done is of someone running across the ice with their baby from Kentucky to Ohio, from slavery to freedom. Yeah, that um, gave emphasis to this uh, important theme about the family and how slavery was damaging the family. And mothers and uh, family members throughout the country could understand how wrong that was. And she tied it to politics and she did it in such an effective way. Um, the Eliza runs away, as you say, and she comes in uh, Ohio to the family of a local legislator who has just returned from the legislature where they have been uh, passing a law against runaways. And the legislator and his wife get into a discussion about what should be done. And the wife says, this is not biblical. This is not Christian. Um, I think we must follow the Bible. Um, and the, the uh, legislator, the, her husband says, well, this is a great public question. We have to help the South on this. And she says, no, we have to follow Christ. We have to follow religion. And uh, eventually the, the uh, husband agrees and ends up helping the, the lady escape. Um, but she makes the point there that the Constitution, uh, as interpreted by the, the leaders of the country, was against the Bible and that uh, Americans and women especially should make sure that that changes, that they, they should follow uh, Christian values. So uh, William Lloyd Garrison had for decades by that time been saying that the Constitution was a demonic compact, a compact with death. Um, but Harriet Beecher Stowe actually expresses that mm -hmm. to people in ways that they can understand. That's exactly that, uh, yeah, yeah reached, in ways that are, are less crazy. She reached, reached people way. emotionally. They came to yeah. understand the things that African-Americans suffered in slavery and how wrong was done to them as individuals and as family members, as husbands, wives, and, and parents. That made a big impact. So since very few people have read Uncle Tom's Cabinet, we should probably go, go forward with this a little bit because the, its impact is, as you said, Uncle Tom is Christ in many ways. He is, he is the, 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 the individual Christian believer uh, who is embodying Christ and going through the experiences of Christ. And he then goes through not a Dantean nine levels of hell, but a th I would say a, a, it's interesting uh, since there are Unitarian tendencies in the in the sto in the Beechers. There uh, he goes through a threefold fall into hell. Uh, he goes first. He begins in Kentucky. Cassie's is just almost a side sort of thing. It's a focus of popular imagination. Uncle Tom's, but it's a side adventure, as it were. Uncle Tom is sold south into a different, and we see a decline of families as well, mm -hmm. uh, which I think always the very Catherine Beecher influence as well. Uh, you see a decline of the domestic economy. Mm -hmm. um, we go from the the family, I forget their name in Kentucky. We go then to a badly run household in New Orleans, um, and then finally, as that household economy collapses, literally is implodes, he goes into. A household which is not a household at all. It's bestiality, the, 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 the plantation of Simon Legree, which is not even a, a, a faux family. It's the absence of family. It's the destruction of all family values. It's the destruction of Christian civilization, 2,000 years of Christian civilization. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what Tom has is called upon to endure and suffer through and to the point of death. You put that all very well. And in his Christ-like way, as he opposes the things that are being done that are so wrong and so morally offensive, he continues to plead for the 
enslaver. Um, Simon Legree uh, is demanding that he whip slaves, and he says, I, I will not do it. Um, and then he pleads with Legree for Legree's soul. And um, it, when Legree is, is ready to kill Tom, uh, you know, Tom's plea to Legree is not to do such a thing because it will it will ruin the promise of eternal life for Simon Legree. Uh, he's he's a very much a, a Christ-like figure. Uh, it wasn't until the 20th century that this idea, Uncle Tom, uh, as a, uh, a degraded black who gives in to whites, uh, became something that was that was commonly talked about. It's clear, as you say, that Harriet Beecher Stowe really presented Uncle Tom as a hero, a religious hero, and she even. I, I, I... I can't. I don't know if anyone's done this, but I, I would love to know how. I can't. It's hard for me to imagine her father had many. Well, he might, uh, or her husband, who's a preacher, had many Catholic martyrologies around. But there is someone she must have been reading something from the early Church Fathers, like the Martyrdom of Polycarp, or something like that, because it tracks so closely with some of the stories of early Christian martyrs. Oh, that's a good observation. Um, it's important to know, too, that she feels that black people, though they're not like white people, that they probably have more religious ability than white people do. And she praises them for that. Um, she sees black people as different, as kind of an exotic race in some way. Um, it's hard to say that she's a racist in the sense that we think of racism, because black people to her are superior in some religious respects. Um, but she doesn't really see them as people who fit into the American future. And uh, at the end of her novel, uh, various major characters are all interested in going back to Africa to convert Africans there and to win Africa for Christianity, but not to make America a place where black and white people enjoy equality. And yet, isn't that Marcus Garvey? Isn't that, um, isn't that a lot of the people that, well, it's W. Du Bois near the end of his life, but I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, of the various people that, uh, gosh, now I forget his name, but people who had been, uh, he would, Du Bois would meet yeah. when he was at Wilberforce, who had been in Liberia and who had been doing that sort of work. They're very, the people that she's describing uh -huh. are very much like these guys from Oberlin or Wilberforce who are then going to Liberia because America's contaminated and they are a sort of proto-Africanist proto-Wakanda kind of uh, ideology. Well, her book is even very close in time to Martin Delaney's The Condition, Elevation, yes. Immigration, and Destiny of the Colored People of the United States, where he yeah. is arguing for uh, establishing an African nationality. I doubt that she read his book. or I know she started publishing her book before he wrote his. But um, she uh, is she, she's not overly critical of white slaveholders, she is also critical of Northern um, New Englanders, but she has that that great person who is could be her sister Catherine, uh, <laughs> who comes to New Orleans to sort of take care of the household to keep it from imploding. Yeah, uh, and she has to confront her own her own vices and her own her own uh, flaws of her own character towards race. Yeah. And as a committed Christian, that woman tries to reform. She takes a troublesome young girl who is a slave back to Vermont with her. And uh, she tries to treat her with love and does help her become uh, better educated. But again, at the end of the novel, this young woman is going to go back to Africa. She's not going to stay in America as part of a bi biracial society. 
Yeah. So, so Harriet Beecher, we had already talked about colonization in, in a weird way. She's a, a, she is also a colonizationist. Um, she might not be racist, but she is certainly race conscious. And there's a, there's a, well, I don't want to make any, uh, you can see this in, in, in the way she does believe blacks are other and, um, in significant ways, which can be uncomfortable the more that you think about it. Yes. Let's put that. I remember the statement of George Washington Cable that the problem is that white Americans saw black people as alien as not part yeah. of the society because they were different. And certainly that's true of Harry Beecher Stowe, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, but but yeah. she accomplished a great deal in making Northerners understand the cruelty and the, the human wrong of slavery. Could you get across to people um, just how, what an immense seller I mean, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin is. Uh, I, I, you probably don't have the facts and figures, but just how popular she is because it is staggering. If we think about per capita, the sales of books, if we think about I mean, the fact that 500,000 people signed a letter well, or an address welcoming her to London in a time when London's probably 2 million people. That's right. Or, I mean, it's just the, the numbers of people that read or have read Uncle Tom's Cabin are 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 staggering in an era when getting a 3 million viewer share uh, for, for a television show is, is, is considered really good. Uh, the book sold 3,000 copies on the very first day, an unprecedented 300,000 copies within a year. It sold millions in, in Europe where she didn't earn royalties on it. Um, but it ended up being the most, the best-selling book in the United States throughout the 19th century, except for the Bible. Yeah, people always people always are citing books like that, but this actually this actually is that book. I think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is actually that book. Um, let's move on. I, I uh, we've got about uh, twelve or so minutes left. Uh, I think that we should uh, go on to a person, the one person in the book that I never ever heard of, and as I proved at the beginning, I can't pronounce his name, and that's Albion Tourget. So. Who is Albion Tourget? Is he a French immigrant to the United States who's against slavery? No, he's not an immigrant. He was a native-born American from northern Ohio. And he comes out of a reformist culture that's very similar in, in some ways to Harriet Beecher Stowe's background. Now, he didn't have a family that was full of ministers and reformers. But that part of northern Ohio had a very um, robust democratic uh, culture. And uh, he believed strongly in uh, debating issues and trying to make the country better. Uh, he was independent-minded from the, the beginning, but he didn't really become concerned um, about creating racial equality until he f served in the war. Uh, as a soldier, uh, he saw uh, slaves, he saw black people who worked for and who fought for the United States Army, he came to appreciate the contributions they made and the abilities they had as human beings. And when the war comes to an end, you know, he is determined that something must be done to create equality and to bring the United States closer to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, so he, he actually moves to North Carolina uh, in order- So he is a carpetbagger. He's uh, one of these carpetbaggers that I was told about in high school oh, that and, were so unpopular. And he does such terrible things as 
uh, selling land to black people on, on decent terms, uh, helping them get an education. He and his wife even adopt a black child, take a black child into their home to, to raise her and help educate her. He is treating African-Americans um, in an equal manner in North Carolina, and then he becomes involved in politics. And because he comes out of that robust democratic environment of, of Northern Ohio in the, the Western Reserve area, um, he doesn't hesitate to argue with the, the native whites in, in uh, North Carolina. And he is constantly in danger because of the outspoken things he's saying. Interestingly enough, and ironically, some of them also respect him for that because he's taking strong stands the way Southern white leaders did, uh, but he's on mm -hmm. the other side. Uh, yeah. And he, be but, but in, in an honor culture, he's uh, he's behaving like a man of iron, uh, a man of he's like Calhoun. He's a man of iron. Very good. I mean, he's yeah, yeah. And that's 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 you can respect that. I mean, you might want to kill him, but you still respect him. <laughs> that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. um, and he plays uh, some important roles in North Carolina. He becomes a judge. Uh, he's one of three lawyers who revamps the whole legal code, and uh, that was praised for decades as for such a good job that was done. And he stands up to the Ku Klux Klan, and he's uh, threatened himself, but he, he never gives in. Uh, and uh, even when the uh, white supremacist forces take over in North Carolina, Torget doesn't give up in the sense that he stays in North Carolina long enough to finish this novel that he's been working on. And the novel, um, Fool's Errand, uh, proves to be a very uh, popular novel in the North, and he follows it up with another novel, Bricks Without Straw. And he's explaining to Northerners uh, how undemocratic, how aristocratic, how, um, uh, how troubled the, the political system and the social system of the South is and how much needs to be changed. And he argues uh, for the importance of education, that the best way to try to change the situation in the long run is to provide educational aid to the South so that the the, the great amount of illiteracy that was concentrated in the South could be undone. Um, well, the, so um, Albion Tourget is then a, 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 a forerunner of Ben Talmadge and Josephus Daniels. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is that that's, that's half of it. <laughs> but, but what we see is later Southern progressives pick up an amazingly large part of that program while dispensing with the center of the program, if you see what I mean. Yeah, cer they certainly differed on the questions of race. And which, um, yeah, after, but they, they, they certainly, they certainly are, they certainly adhere to most of the rest of that. That's right. You know, that the greater democratization, unlike in Virginia and the Carolinas, you're going to have back to greater overthrowing the plutocrats, overthrowing the bourbons, you know, raise education, scientific farming, scientific this, you know, the power of the press, all the rest of that, eugenics. But then, you know, Northerners believe in that too. But Josephus Daniels was also one of those bourbons, one of those uh, elite leaders who helped to put down the populist revolt and who, who well, told the ordinary Southerners, white Southerners who were suffering and who said, let's vote with black people to change this and make some economic changes. They said, well, no, we're not going to allow that. We're going to count the blacks out and then we will always be in control. The white elite will always win the elections. Uh, and um, well, that's the way in which North Carolina is more like Virginia than it is like South Carolina. I, I, I would, I would, I would argue, um, but because of course that's not what Tillman's saying. Um, you know, Till, Tillman is is Tillman is has 
has uh, he's absconded. He's with the, the populist movement. I mean, he is the populist movement after a, cer a certain point. Target is working hard to make contacts with blacks and to help them uh, advance toward equality. And more than any other white leader in the last, say, 20 years of the 19th century, uh, he forms working relationship with all kinds of black editors and reformers and writers. Uh, and uh, through a newspaper column that he published uh, almost every week in Chicago, uh, he tells Americans about what's going on in the black community, refers them to uh, other articles that black people have published, and uh, even at one point creates a National Citizens Equal Rights League that uh, rather quickly has 250,000 members. Uh, it, that's not an organization that persists, but it's probably a forerunner of the NAACP that would be formed about a decade later. That's a, that's extraordinary. And uh, he, where does he, he is one of these people that you read when I started to read some of their letters and diaries, these, a lot of these so-called carpetbaggers are rather, I mean, there are plenty of Union soldiers who have sort of Frederick Law Olmsted version, vision of the South when they're there, how miserable and awful it is. Um, Tourget seems to be one of these people, and, and they went everywhere through the South, who said, this is a beautiful place. It would be wonderful once they get rid of slavery. I want to be a Southerner. Mm -hmm. uh, and Tourget is one of those people. They have to be driven out with violence <laughs> That's right. in, order to in order to stop being sort of new Southerners. Mm -hmm. uh, where, does he, where does he end up? Is he in Chicago? Uh, um, let's see. Um, I think you've got me on that question. I don't remember exactly where he was living at, at the end. Uh, he manages to uh, work for an anti-lynching law that's passed in Ohio. He's still influential in his own state. Um, but uh, he's kind of um, spread widely because in the 1890s, he's working with uh, people, black leaders in New Orleans to bring this case against segregation in public transportation. And he you know, writes an important brief for the uh, case in Plessy versus Ferguson, which unfortunately he doesn't win, but he makes very but, interesting arguments. But it's an indication that it's, it's so wonderful to discover him because it's an indication of how he was at the center of so much of this, of this, uh, of the argument. He was at the center of the argument right into through the 1890s, you know, 10 years before NW, the NAACP, he's got this organization. He, he's, a, he's a fascinating character. Not only did he argue that the 14th Amendment really prohibited this kind of discrimination, he also uh, made the argument, if one drop of uh, black blood makes a white person um, uh, a Negro, why wouldn't one drop of white blood make a black person a white person? And he also argues to the Supreme Court that they ought to think of race as almost as a property right. He said, what uh, lawyer starting out today uh, would uh, feel, uh, would be willing to be considered black uh, because that would destroy his career even before it began? Wouldn't any justice of the Supreme Court be outraged to be treated as a black person the way that uh, uh, black people are treated in the country at that time? He was an impressive man. Let's finish up with another reformer. Well, uh, Tourget is actually a practical politician as well. Uh, but I want to finish up with someone who we don't associate with politics. And uh, quoting, to your, quoting you to yourself, um, you said, uh, the era's leaders of reform were more principled and systematic than the politicians, but they worked from positions of less power and achieved progress rather than complete success. 
one of those who achieved probably less success than others was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, so, but she worked from positions of extraordinarily some of some weakness. Um, could we briefly think about her as a, an exponent of the Civil War political tradition? Oh, I think we can because this issue of equality and also of slavery was central to her career. Uh, she fought very hard for equal rights for black people until uh, with the adoption of the 14th and 15th Amendments, uh, all those who had been helping her fight for both issues decided to jettison the concerns for women and to vote uh, to support only progress for black people. She then decided we as uh, people working for women's rights must work separately for women's rights. And the things that she says in the, the last 20, 25 years of her career are so modern and impressive that uh, they almost you know, form a, a, a body of inspiration for feminists today. Uh, I think that she is a very unusual individual in that she's so independent in her thought. She follows her thought through and she follows logic. Um, we human beings really tend to need the support of our uh, fellow men and, and women. We, we need to be accepted. We need to, to fit in. And that's one of the reasons that it is difficult for reformers like uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton to have uh, a completely successful career. Uh, the physicist Max, Bl Max Planck uh, once wrote that truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows <laughs> up that's familiar with it. And <laughs> yeah. That's what Thomas Kuhn used in Structures of Scientific Revolutions, that, that quote. And in, in this uh, 19th century, uh, we have many people who work for reform with arguments that are absolutely uh, convincing to us today, but they were not able to succeed. What really makes a big change was the war and other big efforts, big changes in society. Um, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton's uh, a courageous reformer because she never... Um, almost never gives up on the things that she believes ought to be done. And her, her but, views on women's rights were very far-reaching. But she is a little controversial, I mean, probably then and certainly now, uh, because the way that she does, I mean, for, for, I don't know if Frederick Douglass breaks with her completely, but he has some reason to be angry with her. Well, he was more supportive of her than some of the abolitionists. And unfortunately, when uh, the uh, 14th and 15th Amendment left women out, uh, she made some very regrettable racist kinds of comments about how the country was supporting uh, uneducated uh, you know, black people instead of uh, impressive uh, white women. Uh, so she occasionally, in frustration, descended into some racist remarks. But um, she, uh, and I, I should say two other uh, feminists, uh, broke with her. For 20 years, there was a rival organization because they thought she was too radical. When she talked about divorce laws, that just didn't seem acceptable to middle-class uh, reformist Americans, and uh, many uh, suffragists uh, couldn't go along with her. Finally, in 1890, the two organizations join again, and she's made the president for a couple of years. But even in her last address, um, when she finishes speaking, the organization decides that they're not going to support the book that she's uh, been writing about religion, where she criticizes uh -huh. uh, the attitude of many religious leaders. Uh -huh. um, how did you choose these people? And who did you consider, who did you leave out? 
I mean, I wouldn't have had the guts to put in Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, probably. Uh, just too big. You know, I, I, I think lots more Albion Tourgés, but I can see why you did it. Um, so, so how did you decide on these? These uh, stood out to me as uh, among the most important, or probably the most important in relation to this whole question of race, slavery, and equality through the 19th century. Um, I really didn't consider too many other possibilities. When uh, you raised that question, uh, one person who did come to mind would be uh, John Marshall Harlan, a Kentucky slave owner who later becomes a Republican and who becomes a very impressive uh, Supreme Court justice standing up for equal rights. Uh, his career was certainly an interesting one. Uh, Martin Delaney. And his, and, his, and his personal life because of his half-brother who was uh, his father's son by a, a black woman, a, an enslaved woman. And with whom he had a, a, a close relationship. They were on yes. family terms he, and uh, worked together yes. on things. Um, and then uh, Martin Delaney maybe would be somebody that could be uh, considered too. Mm -hmm. but although Frederick Douglass is undoubtedly uh, a greater force in American abolitionism than Martin Delaney was. No, yeah, a greater force in American politics, exactly. period. You know, I mean, up there, I think, with Hamilton as the most important American political figure, most important, the short list of, Amer of great American political figures who never became president, mm -hmm. got to be in the top five. And Douglas, again, is somebody with amazing independence of view. Uh, he could take all kinds of criticism and forge ahead to do what he thought was right. And, and I think the word is overused, uh, so I will defend this, but he is an actual authentic genius hmm. um, because it, he is able to arrive. I mean, he's so similar to Lincoln in so many ways. Uh, as Hobbes used to say when they said, Mr. Hobbes, you only own five books. He said, I would be, a, 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 if I read more books, I would be as great a blockhead as anyone else. <laughs> um, what, what Hobbes uh, and Lincoln and Douglas have is the ability to read very little and then reason through it from first principles to then reproduce the entire sort of crystalline cathedral of logic and principle, um, just based on very on very small foundations. They're able to reproduce the rest, and that's that is the, I don't know what else to call that, but genius. And what education Douglas had was mainly self-education. Uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, and the, the Columbian Orator, I'm sure, is a very fine volume. <laughs> But he got a lot more out of it than probably anyone else. A lot of people got a lot out of it. I, it's a very influential book, but uh, he got a lot out of it. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. Um, well, this has been delightful. Um, thank you so much, Paul D. Escott. The book is The Civil War, Political Tradition, Ten Portraits of Those Who Formed It. It's slim. It's elegant. If you like American politics, the Civil War, or reform, concerned about reform, race, and just about everything that's important in American political life for three centuries, you should read this book. I think every chapter has some arguments that will give people things to think about. Thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. My pleasure. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone. And I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. <laughs>